0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, visit again with me the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like you to find the last page, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you are a guest of ours, we are one Sunday away from completing over a year and a half in this wonderful letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth we know today as 1 Corinthians. Corinthians. Uh, Two weeks ago, I finished a series in chapter 14 dealing with the wonderful spiritual gifts God has given us, including understanding and explaining the spiritual gift of tongues. And next week, I will complete the book as a whole by going back into chapter 16, which is really some apostolic housekeeping. In other words, it's his conclusion to the book. It's a living letter to you and me because it is the Word of God, but it was also a practical, functional letter. Paul is communicating to the believers in Corinth some details about other people's lives and about his call to them in this great conclusion. And in the 16th chapter, I'd like to use one verse as a diving board today. That verse is verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. It's one of the last closing challenges that Paul issued to the church in Corinth. And this one is specific to a group of people in Corinth, namely the men. Look what the Bible says in the 13th verse of the 16th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Be watchful. The idea being, look out. Be on alert. Don't be casual about your faith. Be watchful. Stand firm. So he's drawing the posture of a soldier. A soldier does not give up ground, and a soldier has his eyes up. He's looking in any sport you coach, male or female, no matter if it's on a field or a court. You teach young people the stance and which direction to look. A young man holding a baseball bat is taught to look at the pitcher's cap. Not the pitcher, but his cap, because you'll pick up his hand, coming over and delivering the ball from his cap. If you're playing free safety, you're taught to look at the body language of the quarterback. What direction are his shoulders pointing? That will tell you which half of the field he's looking to deliver the football. If a young woman is... Handling the front of a volleyball court if you watch her she is not watching her teammates serve for her eyes will not focus back to forward she's looking waiting for the serve to come over her head and she is in a position to accelerate her body to the net to prepare to return to block to set up to spike so we teach athletes and we teach soldiers how you stand is important and what direction you look is important It's the same in your spiritual life. Be watchful, stand firm. And then Paul says something pretty interesting. He says, act like men. Act like men. And then he goes on to say, be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. So the center command is to you and me, Father, to you and me, dad, to you and me, husband, to act like men. And if we were to apply this to the whole church, there are attributes of biblical manhood that all of us, male or female, can emulate, strengthen our faith, solidarity in our stance, alertness in our posture, the direction in which we look in life. Act like men. A few weeks ago on Mother's Day, I told you I was going to take two Sundays to do something I don't normally do, which is to leave one particular passage and to survey the whole Scripture to answer a simple question. On Mother's Day, we answered a question that we thought we might never need to answer, but now we need to answer because our world is grossly confused. What is a woman? And we answered that theologically. And so today, I come to the second part of that two-part sermon series And I'd like to answer a question, what is a man? Now, there are a few ladies in here saying, I'm glad because I've been looking for one. (laughs) What is a man? When you look at the discussion of manhood and masculinity, there is no shortage of messages coming to us. On one hand, we have the assault on womanhood and manhood inside of the transsexual revolution. As I have taught you, some of you lived through the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. And then all of us have lived through the homosexual revolution. And now the third wave is known as a transsexual revolution. Now, today's not the day to take that argument apart and put it back together. And I've continued to remind you that our role is not to attack people who don't know the Lord, who are lost in their sin, who are confused. Our our role is not to affirm people in wickedness, but our role also as a church is to never assume that the church fully understands. This is why we all come back weekly for more teaching and more edification. And for men, especially young men in the room and those of you raising young men, boy moms in the room, when we think about what manhood is, there's no shortage of messages. On on one hand, there's this idea that femininity and manhood can go together. There are now marketing schemes to market men makeup makeup. Where I'm from, the boys don't wear makeup. On the other end, though, there are intellectuals like Jordan Peterson, who does not come from a Christian worldview, but is saying a lot about manhood that men are being drawn to. And then there are characters like influencers, like Andrew Tate, who espouses masculinity, and yet If you listen to him and what he says, there's a divorce between the masculinity of having women and success and money and the masculinity of the Bible. And what happens is, is that the world hears messages about masculinity in response to the world's assault on manhood. And they don't like it, so they label it toxic masculinity. In fact, we see signs like stop, toxic masculinity. Masculinity. One of the best Baptist minds we have today is a, a theological professor named Nancy Piercy, a woman, a great, brilliant woman of the Lord. She recently spoke to this, and I thought it was so good I would share it with you. She said, the problem with our view of manhood today is that there are two competing scripts of masculinity. If you're raising boys, listen, this is important. They are the God-man versus the real man. The Bible says men are made in God's image, as are women. This is what uh, Professor Piercy says. And that men's unique masculine strengths are not given to them just to get what they want, but to provide, to protect, to take care of the people they love. So where did the idea infiltrate culture that masculinity is somehow toxic? Well, she goes on to really give commentary to that. She says this in the next slide. She says, the irony is that secular view of masculinity created the image of toxicity or the real man image. Piercy says, culture imposes this real man script on men that contains a lot of the traits that, of course, we consider toxic. Now, in completing this thought, entitlement, dominance... Control. These are not things that should be celebrated in a man's life. He feels in tight order. He must dominate or he must control. But when these traits are disconnected from the moral vision of the God-man, it can slide into being toxic. So there's two risks. The one we all identify is the attack on masculinity by uh, the sexual revolution, homosexual revolution, and transsexual revolution. That somehow manhood is nothing more than a social construct. Most people who attend churches like this, conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical churches, see that for what it is. And we don't aspire that our boys grow up to apologize for being made in the image of God as men. But the other end is that a reaction to that separate from the gospel simply takes the worst parts of a man's sinfulness and celebrates them as the version of masculinity that the world really needs. And what the church needs to say is that, no, that's unbiblical as well. So what is a man? Well, just like the sermon on Mother's Day about what is a woman I'm going to answer it with six statements about six aspects of a man's life. What is a man physically, spiritually, sexually, paternally, missionally, and relationally? And when we take the totality of the definition and press it into a definition and understanding of biblical manhood, then we can begin to see how we react. And this is what I would say to you as we begin to walk through these very quickly. If you're a man, the application's obvious. This is what you and I should aspire to. Even writing and developing this sermon challenged me in areas of weakness and deficiency in my life. If you are a parent and God has blessed you with boys, this is what you should direct them to become. But if you are a parent and God has blessed you with daughters— This is how you should know to train them what to look for in a future partner. In addition to that, every woman in the room has a decision to make as to the kind of men she follows, she encourages, and she influences. So really, while this message is about biblical manhood, just like the message on biblical womanhood, this is for the whole church. And if you like lists, here comes one. number one a man physically is an adult male made in the image of God. This is what a man is physically. You do not have the ability to become a man. you are made a man in the womb. The Lord's first decision in your life is to create you in his image. The second decision is is that he chooses your gender. And therefore, the entire premise that gender is a construct we conform to is a lie. It is a myth. It is not true. And so, to participate in the world's disillusion is not affirming or loving in any way, shape, or form. It's like the use of the word trans. To the degree that I can, unless I'm in a secular setting where I'm having a conversation with someone and I'm trying to be respectful, that word makes no sense because it assumes you can transition. You cannot change your chromosomal makeup you cannot change your biology. You can surgically mutilate the body. You can dress up the body. You can make up the body. But you cannot change a woman into a man or a man into a woman. And so, when people struggle with confusion over their gender, which is not new, it's called gender dysphoria, and up until about three minutes ago culturally, it was treated as a condition that was a disorder where the person could be lovingly and medically and emotionally and spiritually helped to embrace their gender now in the name of an ideology that is wicked and of Not of God, there is this idea that we choose our gender. Now the problem with that is, is that it follows suit with a worldview that dismisses God. You do recognize the relationship between dismissing the need for God in creation and the need for God in the lordship over gender. If you reduce us down to highly evolved animals, then of course you can make every choice for your life because no one above you has made any choice. You are the result of a random cataclysmic coincidence. But if you believe in a God of heaven who has made you in his image, then you will believe what he said and what did he say, Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now watch, right out of the gates, chapter 1 of the Bible, male And female he created them we don't apologize for this we rejoice in the glory of God shown in the masculinity of men and the femininity of women this is how he created them and you say well that's Old Testament Jesus affirmed this your Savior that's why there's no room within biblical authentic Christianity to give one inch To this disillusion and ideology that's being pumped even from some modern-day pulpits they asked Jesus about marriage and divorce and Jesus went right back to Genesis 1 in Mark 10 and said but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female so to follow the Lord is to acknowledge, number one, you are the result of his creative divine plan, and number two, there is no divorce between your biological sex and your gender. You are made male or female. One of the arguments that often comes from some who would push back against the worldview that I'm expressing is, well, you got to follow the science. You gotta follow the science. And not to get too political, but I've noticed with that crowd, you follow the science up until the science disagrees with your ideology, then you stop following the science. I was reading on a secular website this week in my preparation for this morning. I was reading an article about the difference between men and women physically. There were a bunch of them. I, I just want to read a few, and I think some of you will have an aha moment. Men typically have thicker skin. <laughs> The, the actual skin, the actual skin, <laughs> about twenty-five percent thicker. I love the second one. The the difference in density goes beyond skin. And every woman in the room like, yeah, my husband's been dense since I've known him. <laughs> Usually, men have denser and stronger bones and tendons and ligaments. This is why it's an absolute farce to attack young women by putting them in a position to have to compete against a male body. It makes no Sense. Number three, on average, men typically have more muscle mass than women. And those skeletal muscles are faster and more powerful. The second longest finger for most women is the one next to your thumb. That's your index finger. But where I'm from is called the pointer finger. Now, I thought this was cool. The minute I read it, I was holding my hand up to see how masculine I am. <laughs> it says, the second longest finger for most women is your pointer finger. But men are the opposite. They usually have a ring finger uh, that are longer than their index finger. So the length of your ring. I wanted to bend my index finger just to remind myself I'm a man. <laughs> there, every person in the room has left the sermon. They're like, <laughs> honey, honey, come here and look. Honey, come here and look. It's like that thing I do with my five-year-old. I'm like, you know one of my arms is longer than the other? She's like, uh-uh, I go look. i got a few of my boys that still struggle with that. She figured it out. There are differences in the way male and female brains are structured and how they process information and interact with chemicals. Some examples, men have more information containing gray matter, but women have more white matter, which connects different parts of the brain. I thought this was great, guys. Also, women have a bigger memory center than men. Oh, don't they? A woman's circadian rhythm is more likely to be short of a 24-hour period. Men are more likely to be night owls. But women function function better during periods of sleep deprivation. This is so true because there's no mother in this room that's not sleep deprived. My wife has not slept good in 19 years years. The other day, she and I were sitting in the living room. I got back from working out. She was just getting up, and we were there. And I know, I know it doesn't look like it, but I do work out. And, And we were there. And after we talked for about 10 minutes, I said, oh my gosh, it's happened, Laura. We are old. All we did was take inventory. I said, well, how'd you sleep? Good. How's your neck? How's your shoulder? Well, how many times did you have to get up? You know, I didn't have to get up one time. Conversations we never had in our 20s. Like we cheer each other on. If you say you slept all night, we're like, "Good job, bro." It's like benching three hundred pounds at our house. Great job. <laughs> During exercise, women's primary fuel is fat, and for men, it's carbohydrates. I don't really understand that because every carb I eat turns to fat. An average adult female has 15 to 70 nanograms per deciliter of testosterone, but men have 270 to 1,070. Each year after age 30, men's testosterone levels drop about 1%. That doesn't happen for women, but women do see their estrogen levels fall off after menopause. We know everybody's running from low T. Men have pronounced Adam's apples. That's because they have larger voice boxes, and that makes the surrounding cartilage stick out more. Both sexes hit peak bone mass at around 30, but at 40, men and women both begin to lose bone mass, women more. The daily requirement for men for calories is higher than women, and pound for pound, muscles burn more than double for men. Sorry, ladies. Men and women carry different amounts of body fat. The higher body fat in women, about 10%. And mostly, it, it, uh, it, it, this, they carry their body fat low and men tend to carry it around their midsection, their belly. We won't even make a joke about any of that. <laughs> women typically have lower blood pressure. <laughs> so much I could say there. Regardless of race and ethnicity. A C- couple more. M- men are less sensitive to cold temperatures. Women have a better sense of smell. They have 50 more cells in their olfactory bulbs. In other words, they smell better. And the way men and women see is different. On average, men are more likely to be colorblind. You can tell by how you dress yourselves when she's out of town. And women are able to distinguish small differences in color better. That happens every Saturday night when she goes, you going to wear that? You know, she never is critical. Here's the point. We're we're just made different. We're just made different. And the world is attempting to tear that down. But I not only want to stress how we're made different. I'm not a scientist or a physician. I want to talk about the maker who made us different for his glory. There's a reason that we're made different. It's because when he builds the most important building block for society, which is the family, And he places men and women together, their strengths and weaknesses beautifully complement one another for the growth and the nurturing of the next generation. So that's who men are physically. Number two, men spiritually, a man is spiritually a sinner in need of salvation, which is fully available to him through faith in Christ. If you remember the Mother's Day sermon, this is exactly the same. This is where we have no differentiation. Uh, The Bible refers to salvation in every book in some way, shape, or form. But one of the more beautiful explanations of how this affects mankind is in the book of Romans. If you're a guest of ours, if you hear nothing I say, I want you to hear this. Just as sin came into the world through one man, a death through sin. That's Adam. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned. A little bit later in that same chapter but the free gift of god is not like the trespass so there's a difference between what adam the first man did and what jesus the greatest man did for if many died through one man's trespass much more have the grace of god and the free gift by the grace that the man jesus christ abounded for many paul would go on to say and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. He ends by saying this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, we know we're all affected by the sin of Adam, much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It's why when I think about my four young men that I'm raising, If you were to press me, and it would be very hard to do so, but if you were to press me into one simple statement that would cause me to die a fulfilled father, it would be that my four young men grow to love the Lord Jesus with all their heart. Because it is in a right relationship with him that they can fully become the fullness of what God intended them to be. And ladies, that is equally true of our daughters. It's also why the world's effort to rescue masculinity from the ideology that is attacking it will never, ever fully deliver. Because the idea of being a man is not to run for fear of femininity. It is to be found in Christ and embrace who you are physically, physiologically, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, paternally, in a right relationship with him. And this is what I would say. If you don't have that right relationship, some of the truths I'm teaching today and the principles of manhood can certainly influence and impact your life for the good, but they will never deliver what only the gospel can deliver. It is only in the lordship of Christ that true manhood is found. So this is what a man is spiritually number three a man sexually is uniquely made to either live a life of singleness and celibacy or commit to his or commit his life to one woman in covenant marriage in a world of over sexualization driven in large part by men and their mythtic guided use of the natural sex drive God has given them, this is still the only option for a man of God. There is no biblical grounds for any other lifestyle other than a life committed to the Lord in singleness and celibacy or a life where a man covenants with one woman who will become his friend, his partner in life, his lover, and by God's grace, the mother of his children, whether they have children biologically or through the wonderful gift of adoption or foster care, this is the biblical plan for manhood. Now, three chapters into the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God set this up, therefore, amen. So the idea being that mama and daddy did not raise a boy, I'm not raising boys, they came out that way. We're raising men. A man shall leave his father and his mother. This idea of coming out from under the authority of one man and establish your own home and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So women are not additions to a man's life. Women are not to be owned by a man. Women are not to be used by a man. A man is to leave his mother and father and take a wife And the two become one. Now, oneness does not erase individuality. Friday night, I was in Birmingham celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. I'm so thankful for that, and one other person is this morning. (laughs) 50th wedding anniversary. I embarrassed my mother because I have a spiritual gift of being a smart aleck. My brother was emceeing the event, and I was the one who was going to share because we wanted the gospel to be shared We have family members who need to hear the gospel, and we want them to bring glory and honor to the Lord. And so they asked me to share, and I called and made sure they could afford me now, and they could. But my brother got up, and he said, hey, just just for kicks tonight, if you were at mom and dad's wedding, would you stand? And I got in trouble because I stood up. It was just a joke. I came four years later. But uh, some of you are like, oh, so— Uh, as we as we celebrated as we celebrated their oneness it did not erase my mom and dad's individual personalities or passions who they were as people i am absolutely sure it will take you two minutes if you come and meet laurel and i to show we are two totally different people with two totally different personalities but the oneness in covenant marriage means there is one life one physical union one goal one mission, and one devotion to the Lord, one goal in parenting, and one family moving in one direction. This is why, of course, the writer of Hebrews, in talking about a man and a woman's life sexually, said to the whole church, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulteress. If you're raising a older teenager, or if you consider yourself a younger adult in the room, listen to me. The age of marriage, first marriages, is rising in our culture. People are waiting longer than ever to get married, and they're getting married less than ever. Now, I can explain to you why the culture is doing this, because the culture has completely divorced the sacredness of marriage and a sexual relationship. In other words, casual sex, sex separated from a lifelong commitment, is just par for the course. It's just the expectation. In fact, we've reduced each other down to nothing more than objects to be be conquered. In fact, people are now reduced to their image. You immediately see their image and you decide, which direction do I swipe and do I even want to meet them for a date? It is sick and it is not of the Lord. But inside the church, I think it's important for the church to say that if we believe this ethic is real, we ought to be champions for marriage. Because when young men come of age, they absolutely have a God-given desire for sexual intimacy. And like never before, sexual stimulation is two to three finger touches away on every device in every pocket in this room. It's in everywhere we look. Everything is oversexualized. And so for young men who are stimulated visually, this can be very very difficult. So it's important to communicate to them that getting married is a good thing for a lot of reasons, but one of the greatest benefits is that it gives you the natural place to display that desire God has given you to be intimate with a woman you are deeply attracted to. So for Christian parents in the room, and some of you are raising children who are not yet of age of marriage, I would say do not let the culture push on you in this way. Encourage your young people to date very strategically, to be open and honest about their expectations of meaningful relationships. But when they, by God's grace, find that person, encourage them to marry. Therefore, you eliminate the years of sexual tension and most cases, sexual sin that exists. I think it's a good thing for a young man At 18, 19, and 20 years old to have conversations with his father. And his father say in a good way, Son, I can't wait for you to find that woman and for you to give your whole life to her and for you and her to struggle together and for you to marry her and to love her and to hold her and to give me the gift of grandchildren and to make a life together. And all you have to do is go talk to anybody in our church in their 70s. Who did that and asked them, what's the sweetest, happiest time of your life? And without fail, everyone will say, when we were in love and we got married and we didn't have two nickels to rub together, but it didn't matter, we made a way. So this idea of saying, well, my daughter can get married when she leaves our home with her graduate degree and her six-figure income, and she's paid off her condo and her car, it is not of the Lord. It is not of the Lord. The Bible has no description of adolescent or the idea that you're too young to make a life together. This is who we are. Fourth, what is a man sexually is followed by this. A man paternally is uniquely designed to lead, provide, and protect as a father. It's Father's Day. And this is the role that only a father Now, where do we go scripturally with this? Well, we could go a lot of places, but I find myself in Ephesians. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you study this passage, it's so good. The idea that fathers only rule with an iron fist and don't weep and don't express feelings is not biblical. It may be Hollywood's version of masculinity, but it's not biblical. In fact, Paul knew in a first century setting, in a Roman setting, that to to be heavy-handed, to be distant, and to be stoic and callous, all celebrated in the ancient Latin culture, was hurting children. You don't provoke them to anger, but you also do not spare the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who pastors in North Carolina this week at the convention where I was, and he said, hey, your kids are a little older than me. Let me ask you some advice, and he was talking about butting heads a little bit with a teenage son, and we were talking about that, and, you know, one of the greatest misconceptions you can do, whether you're a small group leader or a deacon or you're leading in the next-gen ministry, if you're seen as a spiritual leader, sometimes the enemy will feed you a lie that your family has to be perfect, and I'm so grateful I wasn't raised in that environment. Our family's very real and very open, and the truth is there's no pastor who does it perfectly. You, There are six children you can talk to on campus today who will tell you that I am Not a perfect father all the time. But the thing that stands out the most about the fathers that get it right, and listen to me, is that they are very genuine in their efforts to let their fathering be an outflow of following their heavenly father. You can't lead your family until you're a lead follower. That's what a spiritual leader is. See, some of you are intimidated by the thought of being a spiritual leader of your home but it's because you wrongly assume a spiritual leader never makes mistakes and has all the answers. I only know one guy like that in the scripture, and that's the Lord Jesus. A true spiritual leader looks at his family and says, you are behind me, I'm running point, but only that I'm following the Lord first. I'm the lead follower of a good God, and so to the degree that I follow him, you follow me. Now, I know that is a magnificently hard call, but it's also relieving. That spiritual leadership is not you being the endo or having all the answers or always getting it right. It's about your influence on your family coming from the influence of the king in your heart. And so, if you want to reestablish your spiritual leadership in the home, you have to start by reestablishing his spiritual leadership over your life. I've met all kinds of godly men, and many of them will talk about the godliness of their father. But when they begin to describe their father, they're all talking about different men with different passions and different personalities and different strengths and different weaknesses. Stop thinking that there's one way to do it and there's one man you're supposed to epitomize. You can only be you. Remember, you were made in his image. And only God called you to be the father of your children, whether you receive them through conception, through adoption, whether they're children from a previous marriage that you've welcomed into your life, only God has called you to be their father. And therefore, you can only be the version of you that God has intended for you to fulfill in their life. So all the excuses are obliterated and you begin to say, okay, if I'm the person Then, Lord, what must I do? And the Lord would say, follow me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your body, with all your passion, with all your strength. And then as you do that, you will be the leader that I've intended you to be. I I think about how the Old Testament expresses it. I'll put it on the screen. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I'll tell you one of the greatest enemies of fatherhood. Don't ever assume I've never met somebody that said, I wish my daddy had talked less to me. Never. And men, we typically struggle to share our feelings in a greater degree than our wonderful female counterparts. Don't assume, speak into your children's life. One of the greatest lies the enemy propagates is, well, you know, I just try to live a good life in front of my kids. Well, your kids are going to meet all kinds of people who live good lives. Buddhists live good lives. Muslims can live good lives. The guy down the street who doesn't believe in Christ can live a good moral life. He can pay his taxes and be nice and help coach the team. There has to be more than you just living a good life. This isn't cowboy theology. It's about you speaking truth into their life. And listen, blow right through whether or not they want to hear it. I'm not worried about their opinion. I really don't even care speak. Son, I'm going to tell you something you're not going to hear. I'm going to speak this to you. Sweetheart, I want you to know something about how beautiful I think you are. Son, let me tell you why I dropped the hammer so hard on you for that. Here are the three reasons why when you walk out this door, you represent the Lord, and you represent the legacy of your grandfather and father, and you represent me. And and, and that's never going to change. And we gave you your first name. God gave you your last name. And so you, you make sure that you say those things to your children. And you don't have to be articulate. They're not judging the way in which you speak. They're judging you taking the time to speak truth into your children's lives. And then I'm reminded of what the Bible promises us in the book of Psalms. I think this is near to my heart as an, a lover of archery. The Bible says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver, you don't have to do that literally like I did, fills his quiver with him, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You know why I love that verse so much? It's because it is an analogy and a metaphor of war. Like I don't want to raise good kids, I want to raise kids that are dangerous. And let me tell you what I mean. I want the enemy to not be happy that I'm raising my sons. I, I, I want sin and sickness and filth and wickedness to take a throat punch from the men that come out of my house. There's this mentality that parenting is about keeping your kids safe. Of course, I want to protect my kids from danger. But there's nothing more dangerous than writing a blank check to the Lord and saying, Lord, you can use my life for your glory. And that means. If you call one of my sons to ride a one-way ticket to move somewhere to make the gospel known, I have to be okay with that. I did not make his life. You're in charge of his life. And if he knows you, I'll get to spend all of eternity with him. But the gap between today and that day, you make him a warrior and a man of God and you use him greatly. Just two more. What is a man... Not only paternally, what is a man missionally? A man missionally in Christ is expected and equipped to strengthen the church and make the gospel known. There is an epidemic happening right now. I was in a discussion about it this week. Every denomination in the United States is short of pastors. We have more churches. A friend of mine from Georgia told me there are eight Hundred churches in the Georgia Baptist Convention without a pastor right now. There are over 250 in South Carolina. We stopped calling men to the ministry. Now, Now, here's the truth. You can't generate that, and I'm not suggesting that this point means that every man should chase an ordination certificate and a stage. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying the world has made coaching attractive. The world has made making money attractive. The world has made industry and building things attractive. And men are drawn to those things. But if men in the church don't say to the next generation of men, it is a good thing to lead a small group. It is a good thing to sit down in one of those little red chairs and teach second graders the word of God. It is a good thing to sing in the choir. It is a good thing to get on a Plane and go on a mission trip and son, it is a good thing to bring before the Lord your life and say, Lord if you want me to be a godly accountant I'll be one. If you want me to be a godly realtor, I'll be one. if you want me to be a godly teacher and a coach, I'll be one. but if you want me to be a pastor and a leader of the church, Lord I will do that as well. When I think about the second half of my life as your pastor, I'm halfway when I think about that, I think about two things I lay in bed think about them to lead you and to love you and to produce the next generation of preachers and pastors. Because every church that has those men flourishes. This is how God has designed the church to function. And there are men and women longing for that leadership. And I would just say to you, whether you've been at our church for a month or for a decade, if you weren't here next month, we might miss you relationally. But would we miss you missionally? In other words, are you doing something to help us get first downs? Don't focus on touchdowns. Are you doing something to help us move the ball? Ushering, greeting, security, signing up for missions, volunteering in the next gen, praying, coordinating something. Going to your small group leader and saying, you do such a good job teaching the word. What can I take off you? Do you want me to handle this or that? How can I help our church? minister. Finding a local ministry that we're involved in and being involved in it. You know what men do? I'll tell you what men do. Men, I know because I'm one of you, we do what we want to do. What's important to us makes our calendar. So how is serving the church on your calendar? Which leads to the last one. A man missionally is followed up by who a man is relationally. I've talked about a man and his wife and a man and his children and a man and his church and a man and his God and a man and his intimacy. But what about a man and everybody else around them? A man relationally is to encourage and hold accountable other men. Women cannot do this. Men, we have to encourage one another and we have to check one another. There's two things that happen when iron meets iron. That's what the Bible says. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. You know, that pretty blade doesn't come without some grinding. I praise God for men who put their hand on my shoulder and loved me, but I also praise God for men who grabbed me right here and pulled me close and said, you're wrong. You're going in the wrong direction. You shouldn't have done that. You need to rethink that. And that is not a role that a woman can play in a man's life. You want to deflate a husband? Ladies, you assume the role of holding him accountable to be a man. Only other men can step up and do that to the fullness of what God has expected him. And I would just say to you and I, that also means that we should protect the vulnerable. I like what Paul says in 1 Timothy, and then he says it again in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Teach them what? Teach them the Word of God. And how does that manifest itself in the way we relate to one another? Watch this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him, as you would your father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Listen, if you got a boy in your life, you teach him. Honor older men, View older women with the respect you'd view your mother. And when you interact with your peers, you treat them with the purity you treat your sister. And you won't ever have to worry about toxic masculinity in his life. This is what a man is. Give me a man. You give me a man who will pour his life into another man, who will pour his life into another man, I promise you, the wake of that righteousness will be far-reaching. I like what Avery Willis said. As a man, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and down and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need prominence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, top, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by his patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my God is reliable, and my mission is clear. Give me a man. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a man. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till he drops give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for me, he will have no problem recognizing me for I am a man of God. That's what the church needs. So what do you do? Well, let me be real applicable for you. Men, would you stand up? No, I mean literally, stand up. Here it is. I'll give you something to go away with this week. Number one, be with your Savior. Be with your Savior. If just the men in this room started tomorrow morning with our Bible open and our heart open, if just the men in this room started being with our Savior, the impact would be beyond anything we can imagine. Number two, be with one or a few brothers. You cannot do this alone. You have to have brotherhood in your life. And if you think that means you wait on somebody to ask you, you've not listened to my sermon. Men don't let life happen to them, they happen to life. You go find brotherhood, go seek it out. Meet with me, pray with me, hold me accountable. Men, zero secrets. No porn, no filthy language, no shady relationships, no dishonesty. Anything in your life that is contrary to the Word of God, God can forgive but deal with it. Bring it out. This is where I am. This is where I'm struggling. You won't go at it alone. Go back to number two. Go to a brother and say I need your help. I've not gone too far, but I'm close. Help me. I want to repent. I want to turn. Number four, chase your wife and children. A man ain't got time to chase somebody else's wife if he'll chase his. Chase your wife and your children. Pursue their hearts. Stop waiting on things to get better. You, by God's grace, go make them better. And then finally, think about, pray about, and speak about the gospel. If you dwell on the gospel, which is the greatest gift we have, and I don't mean just some little sinner's prayer. I mean the greatness of a Christ who loves you and wants to walk with you and redeems you and is ushering in a new kingdom. If you dwell on those things, it is the greatest defense against becoming consumed with what the world says a man is. All of our pastors are in the prayer room this morning. I put them there. You'll find only men there when you walk in. Men, I'm going to pray over you and we're going to be dismissed. I want you to have a wonderful Father's Day. But in your life, is there something you need help with today, you step in that prayer room, and a man will greet you. and He'll shake you by the hand. He'll look you in the eye. He'll sit with you. He won't reveal anything you share with him. He will simply help you take the next step in your relationship with the Lord. Give me men. And then I think we can hand the Lord Spartanburg. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with these men standing, I now come as their pastor to pray over their life. I recognize that there is a temptation to pray so general as to impress people with the eloquence of words or the articulation of language. That is not my heart. Statistically, there's a man standing right now who's on his way to a divorce. He has no biblical grounds, and you're calling him to turn and repent. More than one man standing in this room is in a secret battle with an addiction to porn. He cannot defeat it on his own. And every man in the room knows the power of that in our lives. But today, you're calling him to repent, to acknowledge his sin, to recognize that those who truly love him will not condemn him, but will reach out to help him. Lord, today, would you give him the grace and the strength to repent and then to put the safeguards in his life? Lord, statistically in this room, there are men who assume they're saved, but you are not the Lord of their life. They have never repented of their sin, and when they think about death, they hope they go to heaven. Friend, if that's you, you are not saved. I don't say that meanly. I'm not trying to be condescending in love. I'm telling you, brother, when someone is saved, they are not afraid of death because they know they're going to heaven. They know that Christ is their Lord and they feel him moving in their life. They're not perfect. They can stray, but they know. If you don't know that you know, brother, step in that prayer room, take a pastor by the hand and say, I want to get saved today. I want to nail this down. Statistically, There's a man standing right now who's the good dad in that he's moral and he works hard, but he's been absent spiritually. Friend, I want you to know you don't have to be intimidated. Just start following Jesus and let your kids and wife go along for the ride. I promise you he'll meet you where you are. Heavenly Father, I can say these things and believe them with all of my heart, but if the men in this room don't act on them, It will have no eternal impact. And so I pray for these men. Help them to feel loved and encouraged. Thank you for them. They're here today. They're watching today. And I pray for your grace for every man in this room to take the next step in his journey to follow you. And I pray this prayer in the precious name of my God and Father, the one who sent the Lord Jesus. It is in his name that we pray, amen. Men, God bless you. We love you. Happy Father's Day. God bless all of you. You are dismissed.